Pints with Jack, Season 3, Episode 7. Part 1, Chapter 8 to 9, Up to the Mountain. Good morning, and welcome to Pints with Jack, a podcast where two enthusiastic C.S. Lewis amateurs get together, share a beverage, and discuss a work of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're reading Till We Have Faces. My name is David, and I'm joined by Matt, Captain Crunch Bush. I used to love Captain Crunch. We were at the airport, and I bought Marie breakfast, and I asked her what she would like. She asked for Captain Crunch. And it's the most ridiculous of all cereals, and so I just thought of you. <laughs> the most ridiculous of all people? Maybe. Who knows? <laughs> or your girlfriend likes Captain Crunch, your podcast co-host likes Captain Crunch, there's a commonality here. What does it say about you, David? You enjoy friendships and romantic relationships with people who like Captain Crunch? That could be it. Or maybe I just think of you as highly colorful, but ultimately bad for your health. <laughs> What's your drink of the week? Well, it's about an hour, within an hour of my bedtime, and I usually need to wind down, and these podcasts just stimulate me because I get so excited to do them. So I am reading sleepy time, uh, reading, I am drinking a cup of tea, and it's from the Yogi brand, and it's sleepy time. So if I start slurring words like I did back when we were recording in, was it North Carolina? Yeah. Yeah, that, uh, it's because I'm tired. <laughs> and I'm drinking Kirkland sparkling water with a little bit of lime. So cheers. Cheers. First of all, this confirms why sometimes, David, I try to cheers and you say, no, we have the quote of the week first. Oh, my and goodness. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think sometimes you subconsciously do this. I saw cheers in both spots. I'm like, yes. Well, what's our quote of the week then? This is from chapter nine. I thought it was a very key part. And actually, it's going to be talked about in our YouTube channel. And I'm going to write a blog post on it. Flung at me like frolic or insolence, there came as if it were a voice, no words. But if you made it into words, it would be, why should your heart not dance? It's the measure of my folly that my heart almost answered, why not? Excellent choice. Let's, let's cheers again after that. <laughs> cheers. Cheers. So that will make more sense when we get to chapter 9. It's a moment where Orwell was feeling almost a longing or a tugging on her heart for something beautiful and starts questioning it. And we've talked a lot about longing and beauty, so we'll unpack that later. Yeah, before we get to that, how was your Christmas and New Year? Because that was the last time you and I spoke. Absolutely lovely. Christmas, I got, so my sister came into town with her husband and my two little nieces, and they are absolutely adorable. I think either 14 and two or 15 and two, we're talking about months And that 14, 15 month age is just incredible. Sets a sense of wonder with the world. Everything needs to be touched, played with, and is incredibly cute. Sometimes eaten. Sometimes eaten. Yes. And she's in the people pleasing stage too. So it was a really lovely time. New Year's was actually great. One of my friends moved into a new house and did a housewarming with New Year's Eve. And so we got dressed up, had a little champagne, and had a really lovely time. And then this past weekend, which is why we're recording on a Monday night, I was in Georgia doing some hunting. 
did some quail hunting. Did you get any? Yeah, I got three. Good job. They taste so good too. Uh, we always eat what we kill, and the the person, one of the people we go with, is very good at cooking them. And so, bacon wrapped stuffed quail, essentially for dinner. Oh, absolutely incredible! <laughs> How about you? Well, mine was great because I got to be able to eat meat again. And so we went to Wisconsin <laughs> to Marie's brother's family, and Marie's brother is married to a fantastic cook. So I ate lots of delicious stuff. Uh, they also have four children, so that was a lot of running around. <laughs> I love kids. Four of them is a lot. Four? That's <laughs> it? Not not like six or seven? Uh, give them a chance. Give them a chance. I'm sure there'll be more. And actually, one evening, Marie and I, we went out to go and watch the new version of Little Women. Have you seen any of the versions of that book? No, but I live next to a movie theater that I have free tickets to every week. So I've been meaning to go to it. I'll go this week. Well, there was one exchange in that movie which really put me in mind of what we've been talking about in Till We Have Faces. So it's a conversation between the mother, she's called Mommy, and one of the daughters called Joe. And it goes like this. I looked this up on IMDb as soon as we got out of the movie theater. Perhaps I was too quick turning him down. Do you love him? If he asked me again, I think I would say yes. Do you think he'll ask me again? But do you love him? I care more to be loved. I want to be loved. That's not the same as loving. Whoa. I had no idea where you wanted to go with this, but, and I'm not trying to get deep here at all, but I see this so much in life where we care more about being loved than loving. I see that a lot, unfortunately, with people in relationships, settling for marriage, because they just don't want to be alone, which is another way of saying, I want to be loved. Hmm. One other great thing that happened. Wait, is that that it? Are we not getting any more on this? Did you have some big point you were trying to give to us or just <laughs> an idea of distorted love? <laughs> it was just the idea of distorted love. I, okay. I, I thought it spoke for itself. Oh, all right. I was waiting for some like profound truth. I thought I was just throwing out some minor comment and no, you're going to come with a bang. No, 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 no. I'll let you do that, Matt. Oh, well, thank was, you, David. I was, tell you what, you go watch the movie. And if you have anything that you want to add, you can do that in the next episode. <laughs> uh, I will. Look forward to it. So anyway, one of the other things that happened was I got to have dinner with Holly Ordway, who is a C.S. Lewis and Tolkien scholar. She's written a few books. Uh, the most recent one was Not God's Type, which is the story of her own conversion. Oh, what a title. It's really good. Yeah. One of our listeners has sent us a message before asking for books to read since she was returning to the faith and that was one that i recommended wow now, i already want to read it by the title alone they say don't judge a book by cover or title but i really do <laughs> well i also got to hear about her new book which is going to be about tolkien i didn't actually check to ask whether or not i was allowed to say all i'll say is it's 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 going to be a really interesting topic and i think it'll turn quite a few things that we believe about tolkien on its head and did she like the Tolkien movie? Uh, she is like most people that I know in terms of it was lacking in certain ways. I got the impression she was a little bit more critical of it than I was. But, you know, each was own. That's one of the things about art. Hmm. We don't all have to have the same opinion. Oh, and listeners, I sent Matt a message saying that she was coming over for dinner. 
And he, he said something like, uh, I'll make sure you tell her about the podcast. <laughs> I think my response was, what do you take me for? <laughs> <laughs> she actually said she had already heard of us. And at the end of the night, I gave her a pints of Jack sticker because, yeah, it's Christmas. It's when you give people presents. And, okay, uh, I was going to say no. When you say just because, I was thinking because I'm David. <laughs> and that's what I do. <laughs> Not because it's Christmas. Well, when she saw it, she went, pints for Jack. Well... We drank wine tonight because, as Hilaire Belloc said, and then I finished the rest of the quotation, it's the one I'm pretty sure I've said on this podcast before, wherever the Catholic sun does shine, there's always laughter and fine red wine. At least I've always found it so. Benedicamus Domino. Yes, you definitely have. That's beautiful. So we bonded over C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, and red wine. So we are now basically best friends. So expect her on the show soon. Well done, David. Well done. Well, we need to, before we jump into the chapter, we need to bring listeners who might not have listened to our New Year's Eve episode because, well, maybe they just like to hear the chapters and not hear us ramble. And so once they realize it wasn't a chapter, they might have turned it off. But there's probably not many of you out there. Well, tell you what, shall we keep whatever you're about to say for the middle of this episode when we're between the chapters and then you can announce whatever it is I think you're going to announce? If you want. Wow, what a way to do a, like a hook for them. Uh, yeah, uh. this is a giveaway, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want free stuff, keep listening. Wow, so we'll do it between chapters eight and nine. Okay. All right. So I'll kick things off with my summary of chapter eight. Go for it, David. Cue that music. Orwell is determined to go to the great offering the following day, possibly with a hope of rescuing Psyche. She eats some food and her servants put her to bed. They wake her soon afterwards, but her body aches considerably from the king's beating. She gets to the stairwell and sees Psyche dressed up like a temple girl. Orwell tries to descend the stairs, but falls. She then spends several days in bed, during which she is terrorized by fevered dreams of Psyche. Orwell awakes to find the fox at her bedside. Over the period of her convalescence, she learns of what took place on the mountain and finds that the plague and the drought are now gone and that the land is starting to return to prosperity. Orwell resolves that, once she is fully recovered, that she will go up to the mountain to collect Psyche's body. Another rough chapter for Orwell. (laughs) As a recap for listeners, the last episode, in the last chapter, she was talking with Psyche, and it was the last meeting before Psyche's sacrifice, where she was hopefully going to go comfort Psyche. But the reverse happened, and honestly, she left quite disappointed. And so that's what kicks off this chapter. And man, it doesn't sound like it gets a lot better. No, and she says that she's planning to go up to the mountain, and she suggests that she might possibly have tried to hide and go and release Psyche once everyone had left. But she says one of the other things that she was considering, it's quite a bit darker. She said, if there's a real shadow brute and I cannot save her from it. I'll kill her with my own hand before I leave her to its clutches. Whoa. Yeah, pretty dark. Yeah, I'm, yeah. It's funny, I'm trying to think what to make of that, and it's almost like too much to think about. I would rather kill the person than the other. Yeah. Yeah, tough. And we see it in her, we also see it here, you mentioned in your summary at this point, She's experiencing these extreme body aches and pains at this point in time. I mean, another example of she's just had a physically physical bodily response to losing psyche. Mm. 
I mean, that's how possessive her love is for her. Like something has been ripped out from under her um, or actually from within inside of her. And it's causing all of this pain and nightmares even. Of course, the king beating her up didn't help. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that probably played part of it here. Way to take away my point, though. Yeah, I, I, th- I think you're right on the spiritual level. Yes. Uh, one, one question I did have for you, though. She mentions in the text that she orders some food to eat because she'd been fasting. Where does that come from? Does she just mean that she hadn't eaten since all of this began? I don't know. I wish I had a better answer for you. If any listeners have got any idea, shoot us a message. I'd like to know the answer to that. But she tries to eat, and I love the way she describes it. It was like trying to put cloth in my mouth. That She really didn't want to eat. Uh, but they give her beer and water, which, you know, as an evening meal goes, not bad. The beer kind of caught me by surprise. Well, I think in the era that that this is set, that's still a good place to get an awful lot of nutrients uh, and an awful lot of calories. That's true. I've run some marathons in my life, and marathon runners beforehand will have beer and pizza. Carbs. But as you alluded to, she wakes up and she says she wakes up screaming because her body has stiffened and she said it was like hot pincers when her servants tried to move her. And one of her eyes is closed up with swelling and one of the servants tells her that the princesses aren't even allowed to go. The king has said that they can't. And one of them, when they see the distress that she's in, the hurt she's in, they say, well, should we go and get Batter? If you remember, Batter is the nurse. and. And Oriol's response is great. She said, I told that one with bitter words to hold her tongue. And if I'd had the strength, I would have hit her. She's not a fan. No, she's not like Bata. No. <laughs> but this was an interesting bit in the narrative. She says, but that would have been ill done for she was a good girl. This, the servant who suggested that she get Bata. And she says, I've always been fortunate with my women since the first I had them to myself and out of the reach of Bata's meddling. It becomes very clear over the course of this chapter that her servants love her. They mention that as they're dressing her, they give her some wine, which someone had stolen from the king. You don't take those kinds of risks for somebody that you don't love. And she also mentions that the servants are crying, clearly demonstrating their love for Psyche and possibly Oriole as well. I think the thing I, the thing I got from this chapter was people loved Oriole much more than she really realized. That brings up two points in my mind, too. One, this pushes the scales a bit more in the, the favor of the theory that Orwell did have opportunities to be more like Psyche. She was loved in various ways, but she was just closed off. And because I've wondered if it's really her fault, as we go back to in the beginning. I know I've asked you this, and I want us to be able to answer this by the end of it. The second thing it makes me think of is, maybe trying to make the argument the other way that isn't her fault, how much some of those traumatic initial wounds caused her to turn within herself mm-hmm. that she can't see it. Like maybe it was just so strong at the age of 12 when her mother died and she first learned she was ugly around that time period that from this day forward, she hasn't been over, able to overcome that. But it just, I don't know. I'm more in the camp that it is her fault. <laughs> <laughs> Ever merciful, Matt. I know. Maybe I should empathize a little better, though. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you should. I mean, these people, the, the, like you said, they're loving her so well. And we're going to see later with the fox. He's loving her very well, too, during a period of sickness and 
this section. Well, let's push ahead in the narrative and get to that point. Because she starts hearing the temple music and she goes to the staircase and can look down. And she says that she sees her father and he is in splendid robes, as you might expect. We've said several times that he's, he always wants attention on himself. She also sees the priest and girls who are veiled as for a bridal party. And she also sees Psyche, but she doesn't immediately recognize her because she's caked with a mask of makeup. Here's what she writes. The reason I had not known her was that they had painted and gilded and bewigged her like a temple girl. I could not even tell whether she saw me or not. Her eyes, peering out of the heavy, lifeless mask which they had made of her face, were utterly strange. You couldn't even see in what direction she was looking. What is your thought so far in Till We Have Faces of Lewis's portrayal of ritual, sacrifice? I've been curious as I was reading this, does he have a positive view or a negative view? Is it that he's trying to make us think, because you read this and you think it's a little extreme and this is weird. Uh, I'm just curious your thoughts. I think I would say I'm expecting it at the moment to be reasonably neutral because it is still an open question at the moment as to whether these gods exist, as to whether there is truth in any of this. And you'd imagine that if there is truth in this, then the rituals that are associated with them will be impacted. It's kind of like when somebody is referring to Holy Communion or baptism, and they'll talk about these rituals. Well, if Jesus walked out of his grave and is God and instituted these sacraments for us to share in his divine life, then those rituals necessarily have to have a positive uh, spin to them. Whereas if he didn't do any of those things, then this is all just meaningless ritual that might have some symbolic value to the human condition, but that's probably about it. What if there's a third way? And we do find out these gods are real. We find out her longing was satisfied and she's in a beautiful communion with them. Not suggesting anything. <laughs> well, she go down that path, though. And, but we start to get the sense that maybe people interpreted how they were supposed to respond to the gods wrong. Mm-hmm. And so these rituals are just, they're not bad because they're, they're, try, they're the human's attempt to respond in the proper way to God. And that's a noble thing in its own right. But they missed the mark slightly. Sure. And that's why when I said what I said, I said that these things like baptism and Holy Communion were instituted by Christ. That's the thing that anchors them to the reality. But yeah. I think we'll, we'll have to wait a few more chapters until we see what's going on here. Yes, because for all we know, the gods don't exist. I'm not yep. saying anything. <laughs> but Oral definitely sees all of this as part of the evil of the gods. She says it wasn't enough for them to take her from me, but they took her from me three times. Once in the initial sentencing of her. Secondly, with their exchange in the five-sided room. And then lastly, when they turn the most beautiful girl in the world into this painted, ugly doll. Yeah, she, it'll be very interesting to see as we progress through this book how accurate Orwell's framework is, interpretation of the gods. Because that's a pretty strong sentence. We've been talking about how it seems Psyche longs for the gods in a very beautiful way. And now you're seeing, which, which finish that statement, if she does, this is all a beautiful thing that's going to end in her in communion with the gods. 
On the other hand, you have Orwell here saying the most beautiful thing that was ever born made into an ugly doll. Those are two opposite views of what's happening right now. Or maybe C.S. Lewis is saying he just doesn't like girls that wear lots of makeup. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I had comments to make about that. I'm going to hold them. Smart. <laughs> Anyway, after she sees Psyche, she tries to go down the staircase and falls and passes out. Then we get a very strange section of the chapter where she's in this kind of delirium. Here's how she writes it. For many days after I was sick, and most of them I do not remember, I was not in my right mind. I slept, and they tell me, not at all. My ravings, what I can recall of them, were a ceaseless torture of tangled diversity, yet also of sameness. Everything changed into something else before you could understand it. Yet the new thing always stabbed you in the very same place. The nearest thing we have to a defense against the gods is to be very wide awake and sober and hard at work, to hear no music, to never look at earth or sky, and above all, to love no one. I have comments about that. (laughs) So do I. I was just thinking the same thing. But she says, One thread ran through all the delusions. Now mark yet again the cruelty of the gods. There is no escape from them into sleep or madness, for they can pursue you into them with dreams. Indeed, you are then most at their mercy. They made it the common burden of all my fantasies that Psyche was my greatest enemy. And she describes the variety of these nightmares, waking mares, I'm not sure what you call them. <laughs> uh, Psyche and Redival are children and they drive her away. Orwell is on her honeymoon and Psyche leads her husband away. Psyche throws her off cliffs that she drags her by the hair or pursues her with a whip across dark mountains. So what do you make of these? Well, I'm still stuck on the line, never to look at earth or sky, and above all, to love no one. That's going to be the topic of our YouTube conversation. I don't like to give you too many sneak peeks of that because they are meant to be pretty free-flowing, but that right there is classic 101 Brene Brown vulnerability. Are you familiar with Brene Brown? I am indeed. Uh, Well, she's fantastic. She's pretty much the... uh, preeminent scholar, researcher, psychologist on the power of vulnerability in our lives. And when you've been hurt and wounded, you're afraid to love. And she writes about that. You're actually afraid to experience joy in general, which is more what I'm going to talk about on the YouTube channel. But once you've been hurt, the defense mechanism is just to not love at all. And as C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, if I'm correct, David will let me know, is to love it all is to be vulnerable of pain and hurt or something like that. You're thinking of the four loves, and that was exactly <sighs> where I was going as well. It's in the section where Jack is talking about the works of St. Augustine. In his confessions, one of his friends had died, and he draw- the lesson that he draws from this is that one shouldn't, you shouldn't put all your eggs in one basket or your hopes in a sinking ship. Therefore, you should love God, and that love will never be let down. And Lewis says, great saint, doctor of the church, and all of that. So I'm a little scared to say this, but I actually think he drew the wrong lesson from this. And the point that he makes in The Four Loves is to love at all is to be vulnerable. Well, now you're going to have stuff to talk about on the YouTube episode. <laughs> Which, just for a reminder for our listeners, go check that out. We, we release in conjunction with these now every single week. Skype sessions, where Dave and I talk more off the cusp about a single topic. And this week, we are going to talk about vulnerability and love. Did Marie put you up to this? 
No, but now I'm really curious. <laughs> this is already going to go way over 45 minutes, though, so maybe we should save that for the YouTube channel. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> well, I mean, I can just guess what she would have said, David. You and vulnerability are... Anyway, let's move on. Let's talk about the chapter. Orwell well, says that the vision... from her nightmares. Anyway, Orwell, she begins to recover. She says that the vision ceased. And all that was left behind was this general sense of injury that Psyche had done her. And apparently she lay there for hours saying, cruel girl, cruel Psyche, her heart is of stone. And you really get the impression that all of this is being driven by the conversation that she had with her in the five-sided room. Orwell then says, and soon I was in my right mind again and knew how I loved her and that she had never willingly done me any wrong. So she still thinks that Psyche has done her a wrong. She said, though it hurt me somewhat that she should have found time at our last meeting of all, talking so little of me, to talk so much about the god of the mountain, the king, the fox, Redival, and even Bardia. Yeah, think about the selfishness of that statement right there. Psyche's going to her death. And if Psyche's going to her death, Psyche can talk about whatever Psyche wants. Let's just be frank. Yet, Orwa is thinking to herself, why is she not talking about me? Now, Orwell eventually wakes up to the sound of rain and discovers that the fox is by her side. And there's something that he says. He says, give thanks to God for the rain and for your own recovery. Is that just a slip of the tongue? He's, he doesn't really believe in Zeus, right? Because he keeps saying that the gods are just lies of poets. I, I interpret it as a natural expression. Oh, well, thank the Lord. In the same way that an atheist might say, thank God, even though yes. that's, that there isn't a God. Okay. Because just in a few paragraphs from now, we're going to see him completely quash any notion that anything that's come about of recent, including her healing and the rain, was not for the right reasons, or not for because of God. Well, just before we get to that, Orwell yet again discovers how much she is loved. She says that the fox was very loving and very tender, and so were her servants. And she actually even outright writes, I was loved more than I had thought. And you do wonder, how has she not realized this before? And why does this understanding not seem to continue? And it put me in mind of some people I know who they can be very tender and self-aware when, when their lives fall apart. But when things go right, suddenly they are hard and cold because they suddenly think they're self-sufficient. I definitely know that's my instinct. I thought it was interesting that Orwell says that we're safe from the gods on two occasions. She'll later add a third. She said, when in our weakness and in our work. So one is when we're in a state of potency, when we're working. And the other one is when we're in a state of forced passivity, when, when we're in weakness. Those are the times that we're safe from the gods. What, explain the weakness one. What do you think she means by that more? I get the work one most. I, I think when you're in a state of weakness, you utterly depend upon those around you. And in some ways, you're now safe from the gods because what else could they do to you? Sort of how she opens the book. And she says, I got nothing left to lose. I'm going to tell it how it is. I could see that. I wasn't sure if it was also because she thinks you can't make the gods angry at you. If you're weak, they just don't pay attention to you. <laughs> you're safe. You fly <laughs> under the radar. They don't notice you. You're not beautiful like Psyche. Well, actually, real quick, though. So we have seen that the, that began raining. The drought is the good times are coming here. I'm curious from your perspective, as the good times roll in, the fever goes away, 
Uh, I mean, everything is playing out as the priest had said. Do you think the gods are good? Do you think it worked? Oh, I'm a believer. You are? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a believer in Unget. In the goodness of Unget, not just that Unget exists. I have a deep suspicion. I mean, we've hinted at it a bunch of times. I have a deep suspicion that what we know about the gods isn't everything that we've been told. The thing that Psyche intuits when they're in the five-sided room, she offers this possibility that the gods are real, but perhaps we don't understand them fully. So I think there's definitely a causal relationship between what happened with Psyche and the change in the fortunes of Gloam, the fact that Shenet is full again, stuff is starting to grow, the birds are returning, the threat from Fars has now gone away because they're now involved in a civil war. Well, my lips are sealed. (laughs) One thing that the fox communicates, which I found rather interesting, was he said that the king is now deeply loved by the people. He said that they pitied him greatly at the great offering because he went up to the holy tree and he wailed and he wept and he tore his garments and he kept embracing Psyche, which is mentioned he had never ever done before. But that he said again and again to the people that he wouldn't withhold even his own daughter when the good of the people called for her death. And a couple of things I thought was interesting about that. One was that it sounded sort of like John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But the other thing that I found was interesting about that, because they're talking in Greek, presumably so nobody else can eavesdrop and know what they're saying. Uh, Orwell calls the king a mountebank, which is basically like a, a scammer or a charlatan, basically saying that he did this big performance talking about how much he loved Psyche, and none of it was true. And the fox's response, I thought, was actually quite insightful. He said that he basically wasn't wholly faking it. He says, he believed it while he did it. His tears are no falser or truer than Redival's. And if you remember, we spoke about Redival before, that her tears were not wholly feigned, but they weren't worth much more than ditch water. It's almost as if, don't... If, if you think they're fully fake or fully false, it's almost as if you're giving them more credit than they deserve. Rather than just recognizing he's immature... He's insecure. And he's weak. And he's weak. It's it's not that he's scheming. It's just in the moment, now he's taken on this persona and now he's sad. But, you know, give it a day and, you know, he'll bounce right back in the same way that Redival might have been crying at hearing that Psyche was going to her death. But give her a new boyfriend or a pretty brooch and she'll bounce right back. He's not evil. He's just weak and shallow. And I appreciate this reminds me of Lewis when he talks about love your neighbors yourself. And remember how he says, we are very quick to create excuses for ourselves. Mm-hmm. But we tend to be very slow to do it for others. <laughs> and in reality, that's, that is what loving your neighbors yourself is. And it doesn't mean excuse away their bad things that they're doing, especially if they're close to you. But it does mean try to empathize with them and understand where they're coming from. So I appreciate the fox here quickly says... No, that's just, it's probably a different answer. Like he's not some smart scheming person who's trying to do all this and is just a wholly phony human being. He's just weak, insecure, and that's really probably how he felt in the moment. Well, remember what Psyche said about Redival. Would you want to be Redival? If not, then she is to be pitied. Yes, I love that. There's a lot of wisdom in that. 
Now, a few days later, Oral asks the question, does he still think that Ungit and the gods are just lies of poets? And he's not as wise as you, as, as we're about to see. <laughs> well, as you said, all of the things that the sacrifice was meant to do, it did seem to achieve. And the fox goes, oh, cursed chance, cursed chance. It's, it's chances like this, just dumb luck, that nourishes the belief of barbarians. <laughs> and Orwell is very quick to point out, ah, but you said there was no such thing as chance. And so somewhat like the give thanks to Zeus comment, he corrects his language, saying that it was something of a slip of the tongue. I meant that all these things had no more to do with the murder than anything else. They and it are all part of the same web, which is called nature or the whole. That southwest wind came over thousands of miles of sea and land. The weather of the whole world would have had to be different from the beginning if that wind was not to blow. It's all one web. You can't pick threads out or put them in. He's basically saying that he's a determinist, that things are just happening the way that they're going to happen, and it has always been foreordained as such, almost like the world is just one big mechanical system. And so the sacrifice hasn't changed a thing. The change in the weather, the change in the fortunes of Gloam were all going to happen regardless of the sacrifice. Have you heard the story of the two individuals in Alaska that are in a bar and one person's telling him a story of how he was in the middle of a deep, deep blizzard in a storm and he thought there's absolutely no way I'm going to get out of this alive. And so he said, God... If there is a God, please save me. Help me. I'm in a hopeless situation. And the person in the, next to him hearing this says, so you believe in God? You're a God-fearing man then. No, an Eskimo came like 30 minutes later and picked me up and took me back home. You don't get it? <laughs> the idea being that God works through his, his creatures. Yeah, it was more just you can interpret. That's not exactly what I was getting there. Clearly, it was terrible. I was just getting that you can have someone interpret a situation very differently. Ah, mm-hmm. Well, oh, that did not land well, David. Mm, maybe it's the way you tell it. I don't know. <laughs> well, that's what point... I get for not having scotch with me right now and drinking tea. <laughs> well, the point that I was going to make is that the fox's explanation that the two things had nothing to do with one another actually takes away what little comfort it could have given Oriel. Because at least if all this stuff was true, then her sister didn't die for nothing. This way round, all they had to do was wait a couple of days. Well, wait the next day and it would have started raining naturally. But in true Greek fashion, the fox, he outlines where they should take comfort. The comfort should be found, he says, that the fact that the evil was theirs, the fact that they did something evil and we didn't. And also the fact that Psyche accomplished herself beautifully, that there wasn't a tear in her eye, her hand didn't even shake when they put her to the tree. And even when they left, she didn't cry out. And that her character was full of all of the really good things that do matter. Courage, patience, chastity, all these other stuff. But what's interesting is then in the narrative, the fox then breaks down and starts lamenting Psyche's death. And Oral writes that, his love got the better of his philosophy. He pulled his mantle over his head, and still weeping, he left. Do you hear a little Joy Davidman in here? How so? I'm going to butcher the quote, but life's too tough to take it with all reason. 
yeah, to, to go by logic alone or some, something to that effect. Well, I think here you're seeing the fact that the fox wants to be a purely rational creature, but his passions and emotions are stronger than even his philosophy. Which in Becoming Mrs. Lewis is the complete struggle between Joy and Jack. Jack is just completely rational, and it just frustrates Joy. Frustrates Joy. I don't know if he's completely rational, but at least he was with regards to her. Relative to her, he was. Yeah. <laughs> uh. But the following day, the fox comes back and he apologizes. And he blames not his emotions, but the fact that he started philosophy too late. That was the reason that he allowed his passions to get the better of him. And in his stoic philosophy, that must be resisted at all costs. He carries on talking about how Psyche was full of every good possible virtue. He says, chastity, temperance, prudence, meekness, clemency, valor, and though famous froth, yet, if we should reckon it at all, a name that stands with... How do you pronounce the next two names? Oh, you're just throwing me under the bus right now. Iphigenia. Iphigenia. Oh, okay, that wasn't bad. That's good. Antigone. Antigone. Ugh. Wow, that was that close. Was good. First one was better than I thought, and I thought the second one I was going to be closer than I was. <laughs> Say that ten times fast. And in response to this, Orwell asks the fox to retell these stories of Iphigenia and Antigone. Did you look up anything about these women? Yes. Tell us about them then, please. <laughs> I did. I promise. Now, I read it in Christine Norwell's book. Mm-hmm. She mentions them in there, and I read that right before this. But I didn't take any notes. But from what I can remember, Iphigenia was... Iphigenia. Iphigenia <laughs> uh, was sacrificed. Yeah, they, they both were. And Antigone's... Antigone. Yeah, was going to... Actually, I thought it was going to be related, like taking the bones of Iphigenia, but instead she was taking the bones of her brother, actually. Mm-hmm. So they're actually somewhat unrelated. But the one interesting thing about them is they both were, f- had a deep belief in doing God's will. So what's interesting is Orwell, who is probably the least person in this entire story other than the king. Well, King X probably does the God's will more than Orwell would have it. And yet she tries to compare herself to Antigone's. So it's a bit ironic. So let me just fill in the, the details on this. Iphigenia, she was the daughter of Agamemnon. And her father had angered the gods. There are several different versions of this, so it it varies a bit. But he had angered the gods, and he was told he must offer his daughter in sacrifice. Otherwise, his attack on Troy wasn't going to work. And he lies to his wife and his daughter and tells them that she's actually going to marry Achilles. So I thought it was interesting, the fact that there's a wedding motif much like Psyche. And Iphigenia eventually realizes what's going to happen, but she offers herself anyway. And this is actually the story, I think, that the fox tells back in chapter 6. Remember when Orwell's coming around and the king says, oh, the fox tells me that even in your precious Greek lands this sort of thing happens. And then he outlines the story of when a daughter gets sacrificed and everything goes wrong. Mm -hmm. I think actually that's this story. I actually thought that too. And when I was looking, of course you were. (laughs) (laughs) And when I stole the words right out of my mouth, David. Mm -hmm, Totally. Well, I'm sure then you will have no doubt also noticed that in one version of the story, 
Iphigenia is actually rescued by the god Artemis from death, even though it looks to everyone else like she died. No, I don't, I don't remember that. I don't think that's true. <laughs> is it? Yeah, that's one version of the story. Uh, I was really hoping you were bluffing me and I was about to call your bluff. Nope. And Antigone, she was the daughter of Oedipus. You've heard of the Oedipus complex? No. No? Okay. The idea is basically you want to kill your father and sleep with your mother. Oedipus was a pretty messed up dude. Yeah, glad I didn't say yes to that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he was king of Thebes and he was the guy who unknowingly married his mother. And after, after his death, his two sons fight for, for the throne and they both die in battle. So Antigone then goes to the guy who eventually becomes king and asks to bury her brother. And he refuses, but she disobeys him and goes and buries him. And that results her being arrested and incarcerated in a tomb. The king eventually changes his mind because he was leaving her in that tomb to starve to death. Uh, and he goes to the tomb to release her only to find that she's hanged herself. And the king's son also actually commits suicide since he loved Antigone. And then the king's wife also kills herself. So pretty much everybody in the family ends up dying one way or the other. It's a very cheery story. Yeah, happy ending. Mm. But somehow out of that, Orwell says, Grandfather, I've missed being Iphigenia. So basically she didn't get to offer herself in sacrifice. But she says, I can be Antigone. And by that, she wants to go and bury Psyche in the same way Antigone buried her brother. We'll see how that works out for her. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. Since we're now between chapters, would you like to make your announcement? Yes, I will keep it short, though, because this is an extra long episode. So what we announced on the New Year's Eve episode was we are, gonna, we are doing a giveaway. You've probably seen teased through social media. The pints glasses, these whiskey glasses with the etched logo on it. Well, we are asking listeners to go into their podcast app right now and to write a review. So give us a rating, write a review, and then go to pintswithjack.com. In the contact form on the bottom of the website, you can then just quickly type in your first name, last name, and your email and send us something that says, I left this review. You don't even have to put the review. You can just put your name on it. And you will be entered in, uh, call it a drawing, in a pretty high probability drawing. Because I don't anticipate there being like 50 people doing this. And I'm going to give out a couple or a few. So there might be a good chance you do get these sent to your house. So you give us your address. If you're selected, we send it to your house directly. And you can enjoy pints with Jack, whiskey, or pint glasses. We'll let you even choose. And with that, let's look at chapter nine. Orwell is gripped by a numbness following her sister's death. Bardia begins teaching her defense, and over the coming days, this helps the numbness to subside. Bardia accompanies Orwell up the mountain, and the two leave early in the morning, passing the egg-shaped house of Ungit, after which they begin their climb. As they ascend the mountain, Orwell battles a rising feeling of joy, and repeatedly has to remind herself that they are on a sad errand. They arrive at the holy tree in the Black Valley, but they find no body. A little way off, they discover a ruby previously worn by Psyche. They continue in that direction and leave the Black Valley behind. They enter a luscious area hidden just beyond, which Bardia refers to as the Secret Valley of the God. There, on the other side of an amber stream, they spot a familiar figure. Dun dun dun! (laughs) You were excited to say that, weren't you? Very much. You stole that from me. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.
Gotta be quicker. So, Aurel is out of bed, but she's still weak, and they cover for her to the king. The king is as fake and as mean as ever, acting like he greatly loves Psyche, and calling the remaining sisters the whore and the hobgoblin. Which is Rough. pretty tough, yeah. Orwell realizes that she's going to need her full strength if she's going to get up to the mountain and bury Psyche. And she therefore realizes that she's going to have to wait a bit. And she also, in a little bit of self-awareness, she says that she realized that she was delaying because once this task was done, there would be nothing else for her to do in relation to Psyche. She would then have to go on and live the rest of her life. And as part of all of this, she's feeling numb. Numb to everything. Time just feels like it's dragging. She says the very shadows seem nailed to the ground, as if the sun no longer moved. And one day, she's just staring at a fat fly on a doorpost, and Bardia comes to speak with her. He says that he knows how she's feeling, and that the cure for him was going off to war. As a substitute, he proposes teaching her how to use a sword. And after some resistance, she gives in. And actually this, well, there's a couple quick little comments here. Interesting how his cure... There's, we've been talking a lot about incomplete frameworks in this book so far, and he's offering one that's better, but still incomplete. Essentially, his answer is, let's just give you some purpose and meaning and somewhat getting you outside of yourself. Wars are fighting for someone. You're putting your life in harm's way. And so I thought that was interesting. But the other thing is we're, as we discuss here in a second, this training, and as she starts to begin this training and goes through this training, I look at this so much as the beginning of her false self journey, because we've talked about the true self, false self throughout this. In fact, the spiritual retreat I go on each quarter recommended this book for the false self and notice that she's in a place of deep brokenness, woundedness, the thing that she poured all of her life into, which was psyche and found her sense of worth in has now been gone. And so she is attempting to fill that with something new. And as just a reminder, the definition I give for the false self is those patterns, those behavioral patterns we've developed to convince the world to love us. And so she's about to learn here. She's being taught if she fights, if she becomes skilled in battle, she will become loved. In fact, remember Bardia gave her that compliment a while ago. And it's the first time someone ever complimented her was on her fighting skills. And we already know this isn't giving something away. She became a great queen of Gloam. And quite a successful fighter. We saw that in like the first page. And so there's, this is interesting right here. Maybe the beginning of when you're in a state of woundedness, things you turn to can become a lot of your identity. So I guess what I'm trying to say. And perhaps I'm reading a little bit too much into it, but Bardia makes a comment about how to use your shield. He said it's not just a means of defense, but a means of attack. Hmm. Mm. Look at you, David. So what she uses to defend herself, she actually ultimately uses to repel people away, like they were swords and spears and arrows. Now you're getting into my Brene Brown stuff. Our defense <laughs> mechanisms prevent us from ever being able to feel like we're truly loved, because hence we've earned it through our false self. Now there's a brief incident where Orwell overhears Bardia talking about her. Oh, it's brutal. Well, it's pity about her face, but you know she's a brave and honest girl. If a guy was blind and she wasn't the king's daughter, she'd make a good wife. And Orwell says, that was the nearest thing to a love speech that was ever made me. Oof. That, that was so sad. It's a pity about her face. Aww. Well, now we know that it's not just her interpretation. I believe we've asked this question before. Mm -hmm. Is it her interpretation or is she really ugly? Looks like she is. 
So despite that sadness, Bardi's lessons do actually seem to do the trick. Orwell says that he had been a good doctor to me. My grief remained, but the numbness was gone, and time moved at the right pace again. Now, because they're growing in friendship, Orwell tells Bardier that she, what she intends to do, that she's going to go and bury Psyche, and he insists on going with her. And when she asks whether he's going to be able to get away from the king, whether the king would let him go for such a length of time, his response is interesting. He chuckled. Oh, I'll spin the king a story easily enough. He isn't with us as he is with you, lady. For all his hard words, he's not a bad master to soldiers, shepherds, huntsmen, and the like. He understands them, and they him. You see him at his worst with women and priests and politic men. The truth is, he's half afraid of them. This was very strange to me. And I'd say, out of everything that we've heard about the king thus far, this is the thing that comes closest to redeeming him. And it does show that he's often a jerk because he's scared. Mm-hmm. Isn't it always the case? In life, when we yeah, were... Some, some people are just jerks. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think so. I, I do believe, I really believe if you get to the core of any person and you were to learn their story, you would see some moment that tainted them, that hurt them, that created them to feel sec- insecure, wounded, afraid, and that's what causes them to act this way. We don't have time to go on a tangent, but I was just, when I was in Georgia, talking to my friend who works in foster care situations, and there's some pretty tough kids who unfortunately are pretty nasty, but it's because she knows their story a bit more and the way they've been tossed around, it makes sense why they are. And I asked her that question of what what is needed? Like, How do you love that person to the point where they feel lovable enough that they don't act that way? And that takes a special kind of individual to do that. Hmm. Anyway, they leave early in the morning, and Orwell wears a cloak and a veil. Again, every single time that she's covering up or putting something in front of her face, I'm going to draw attention to it, because I'm not quite sure why, but I think Lois is hinting at us about till we have faces, whatever that means. (laughs) And they pass the house of Ungit, and they leave the road for a steeper, shorter climb up to the holy tree. And then the sun begins to rise, revealing the whole majesty of the land, and a lark begins to sing. And this is where we come to the quotation that you chose as quotation of the week, which is where she just, she feels herself that she's having to struggle against joy. I won't repeat the part of the quote I said, but right after, remember we ended with my heart to dance, question mark. And then she says, mine whose love was taken from me, I, the ugly princess who must never look for other love, the drudge of the king, the jailer of hateful revival, perhaps to be murdered or turned out as a beggar when my father die, for who knew what Gloam would do then? Like that, that right there answers somewhat why she's doing that. She's resisting it because she's afraid of it. She's afraid to love. She's afraid to experience joy or afraid to experience beauty because the world has taught her she doesn't deserve it. It's going to be ripped out from under her. Something's going to happen. Look how she even projects so far in the future that I'm going to become a beggar when my father dies because I'm going to be turned out or killed. I mean, it's insane. That little scene there, that little passage, it reminded me of the line in The Great Divorce when Lewis says, I do not know if I ever saw anything more terrible than the struggle of that dwarf ghost against joy. Hmm. And is it, could you think that has something to do with Joy Davidman? I don't mean to suggest that she didn't have joy, but when you read Becoming Mrs. Lewis, she experienced a lot of pain. And for much of her life, 
that I think that built up defensive walls. And I believe Lewis actually chiseled those down over their journey. But I know she wrote this in conjunction with him or was the editing of it played a pretty heavy role in this. And I'm just curious. Oh, I think Joy is all over this. Uh, I was actually thinking the other day, the relationship between Psyche and Orwell is somewhat similar to Joy's relationship with her cousin, who was always thought of as the pretty one. When she comes to visit their home and look after the kids and to help Joy out, Bill, Joy's husband, ends up having an affair with her. But Orwell tells us why she's struggling against it. Uh, firstly, she talks about it as just being, it would be unseemly to go to Psyche's funeral all happy. She says, I'm not going to go laughing. And there's a line here, she says, if I did, how should I ever again believe that I had loved her? If you've ever had someone die, it feels strange to be happy when they're no longer there. Mm -hmm. Or on the day of a funeral, to smile at all. Part of it is about it seeming unseemly. But also, there's the lie that if you, are, if you have any measure of happiness, then that says that you didn't really love the person you've just buried, which is obviously false. Yeah. And she's also just rather cynical. She thinks that, well, if she's happy, that's just going to be a precursor to the gods taking her down a pick or two again. Yes. When's the, when's the other shoe going to drop? Exactly. And so she just resolves that she doesn't want to be friend with this god-haunted, plague-breeding, decaying, tyrannous world. Wow. Nice choice of words there. Well, I'm stealing from Lewis because that's, <laughs> that's how she describes it. I, I will say that I want to point out in this, so we've now talked about she started to feel something well up in her. She started to feel this joy. I like how she put, even my ugliness, I could not quite believe in. Like when she was feeling this, it was starting to con combat her ugliness because she says, continues, who can feel ugly when the heart meets delight? It is as if somewhere inside within the hideous face and bony limbs, one is soft, fresh, limbsome, and desirable. I don't know what word that is. <laughs> I should have looked it up. But I thought that was interesting. That she again gets another opportunity to start feeling as if she might be loved, as if she might actually not be ugly, if she might be delighted in. It says when the heart meets delight. And so this is an example of a grace being extended to her, I believe, through the longing. And she's rejecting it. But then they come to the Black Valley, and they see the holy tree, and they see the metal belt hanging from the tree, and there's no psyche. There's no remains whatsoever. But they search around, and they discover a ruby some distance away, and it was on a shoe that Psyche had been wearing at the time. And so they continue to go in that direction, even though apparently even the priests don't go beyond there because it's thought of as the God's country. And then when they go that way, the scene changes. They come to a different kind of valley. Lewis wrote, the sun leapt in. It was like looking down into a new world. At our feet lay a small valley, bright as a gem, but opening southward on our right. And she said she never saw greener turf. It made me think of The Great Divorce again, just describing nature as just very vivid, very bright, very real, that ultimate reality, never seen greener turf. It actually seemed very Edenic. You know, it reminded me of Eden. Well, that would fit with Lewis. There was also a little note there that she could hear the chattering of the streams and the sound of bees. If you remember that one of the things that happened when the plague and the famine was happening, all of the bees had died. But here they're still alive. Interesting. That's a really good parallel. 
that at 9.40 at night, my brain is not giving any further <laughs> thoughts to. But there is something there. There is something there. And she sees a stream. Interestingly enough, it is amber-colored. You remember that Psyche had talked about her king, her prince, building her an amber palace. Yes. And Orwell removes her veil, which I think is a very significant act. She gets on her knees, which I also think is a significant act, and goes to drink some of this water from the Valley of the Gods. Which is also a significant act. Yes. And it actually reminded me again of the Great Divorce. You remember with the artistic ghost? And we're told up in the mountains that there's this fountain. Mm. It's very cold and clear. And when, you, when you've drunk it, you forget about all of your own proprietorship in your own works. She was so close. And then? Well, actually, before we get to that. <laughs> You're killing me, David. <laughs> okay. Okay. And then? <laughs> and then she sees Psyche. And it seems that Psyche's hope, the one that she expressed in the five-sided room, appears to be true. Because she has said that there were some Greek masters who taught that death opens out a door from a little dark room, from that dark valley, into a place where the true sun shines. And Psyche's there. She's alive. She's alive. It was so much fun reading this part to Marie, because she had been so angry that Psyche was dead. And I had read this ahead. (laughs) And next week, we will unpack what all of this means. Because I naturally stopped reading at this point, which drove Marie crazy. It's like, what? I know. Got to read the next chapter. I need to know what happens. It's like, I haven't recorded with Matt yet. I can't do that. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you are so disciplined, David. Yeah, that's me. What chapters are we going to be reading? We're going to be reading the next two. So 10 and 11. Okay. And I just want to wrap up this episode with a poem that I read to our Inklings group. It's another Khalil Gibran poem because I love the guy. And this poem reminds me of Psyche and Orwell, particularly given what Orwell says about her feeling of her own beauty or ugliness as she's going up the mountain. So this is Khalil Gibran, and it's called Garments. Upon a day, beauty and ugliness met on the shore of a sea, and they said to one another, let us bathe in the sea. Then they disrobed and swam in the waters, and after a while, ugliness came back to shore and garmented himself with the garments of beauty and walked away. And beauty too came out of the sea, and found not her raiment, and she was too shy to be naked. Therefore she dressed herself with the raiment of ugliness, and beauty walked away. And to this very day men and women mistake one for the other. Yet some there are who have beheld the face of beauty, and they know her notwithstanding her garments. And some there be who know the face of ugliness, and the cloth conceals him not from their eyes. Wow. That last sentence, I think, speaks for itself. Orwell. So, ladies and gentlemen, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to us at pintswithjack.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram where you get to be constantly impressed with David's fun humor of Lewis. <laughs> wow. And please read (laughs) chapters 10 and 11 and join us next week when we're going to be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers.